Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor Troy Baum with the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies. Coming to you once again live from our studios here in Daytona Beach, Florida. Good to have everyone here with us this morning. If you're joining us for the very first time, this is the Raven Institute of Ministry, which is a ministry of Raven Ministries International. If you want more information on Raven Ministries International, I encourage you to go to our website, which is www.biggrace.com, www.biggrace.com, that's B-I-G-G-R-A-C-E, Com. You can get more information on Raven Ministries International. Raven Ministries International is a ministry dedicated to taking the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world through the preaching of the gospel, through mechanisms such as this, uh, teaching, uh, one-on-one evangelism, uh, preaching in churches or events, taking the, the message of Jesus to the, to the streets, to the, to the lost, dying, and hungry, basically use, utilizing whatever tools that God gives us in order to facilitate the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to people that are desperate. So if you want more information, go on and check it out and go down and see. We have various teams around the United States, Canada, and in Mexico and be uh, venturing out into Europe and in uh, different places over the next uh, uh, little bit as God opens up those doors of opportunity. And so go down to Raven Nation and click on that, and maybe there's a team in your uh, part of the woods that you might be able to get contact with. Or if you're doing something, we'd certainly like to get connected with you and maybe uh, help you in some way. If you need some manpower, some labors for something that God is doing in your, uh, your city, your community, we'd certainly like to be a part of that. If you have prayer requests, please send those to pray, P-R-A-Y, at BigGrace.com. We'd like to lift you up in prayer. If you have personal prayer, prayer for your church, ministry, whatever it is, we want to get our group of intercessors uh, lifting up your needs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that the, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. And our righteousness is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon the faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. So send those prayer requests in, pray at BigGrace.com. If you have questions or comments on the program, uh, we're doing an expository teaching. That's what we do here uh, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have questions regarding this, if you're listening to us live, certainly it's an interactive format. But if you're outside of uh, this or watching or listening to it in a, uh, in a recorded format, be sure and send your questions to raven at biggrace.com, R-A-V-E-N at biggrace.com. And we'd love to answer your questions. If you're responding to our live program, we uh, deal with those and answer some of those questions uh, that are pertinent to our teaching on the book of the Revelation right here in this format as well. So uh, once again, we are studying the book of the Revelation. This is our, I believe, 17th class in this. But if you have not been a part of our previous classes, you can actually go on to the website, biggrace.com, click on Raven Institute, and the previous classes are available for free download uh, right there on our website. Just download those free. You can actually listen to them right there live without uh, uh, downloading them, or you can download them in MP3 format and you can have them for your use. Non-copyrighted, use them any way that you want to, but those are available for that. So thank you so much for joining us. We are looking at the Revelation. The Revelation is the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You know, A lot of people talk about this unveiling, but really what it is, it's, it's God revealing uh, His Son to us in a greater uh, way. And so so that's what we're doing. And we're going to pray this morning before we dive into this class as we continue in our study in the book of Revelation. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We just thank you for your, your son Jesus, Lord God. And it's your desire, Lord God, to, to reveal yourself to us, Lord God, in a greater way. So, Father, today as we come before you, Lord God, we just ask you to search us and examine our hearts and minds, Lord God. We just want, Lord God, to be focused upon you. Anything that would exalt itself against your knowledge, Lord God, we cast those things down. And, Lord God, we bring every thought, Lord God, into the obedience of Christ Jesus. And we just ask, Lord God, that your power and your anointing, Lord God, would not just be upon myself, Lord God, as the, the teacher today, Lord God, but your, your, your power and your anointing would be upon the hearer, Lord God, that we could uh, hear and discern, Lord God, and receive that which you would speak into our hearts and lives this very day. Father, we just ask you to cleanse, Lord God, our minds, Lord God, all these thoughts, all these, these cares of this world, Lord God, that we try to choke out, Lord God, the seed of your word that's been planted in us, Lord God. What we pray, Lord God, that our heart, Lord God, and our minds would be a, a place cultivated, Lord God, to be recipients of that, that word of truth, that it might bring forth, Lord God, uh, some 30, some 60, some even 100 fold, Lord God, from what you've taught us. Father, I pray, Lord God, that this would be a, a, a uh, defining moment, Lord God. This would be a spark, Lord God, to get people, Father, to look deeper into your word. Father, we don't prepare to pretend, Lord God, to know everything. But, Lord God, we know you. We know, Lord God, if we are Berean-like, according to Acts 17, 11, and we, we, we need to search the scriptures to see if those things are so. So, Lord God, we know that you've given us a comforter and the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all truth. 
And we just ask, Lord God, the Spirit of God would be present and evident, Lord God, and he would reveal, Lord God, you to us, Lord God, in a greater and more intimate way. So thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence. And we just ask in the name of Jesus for your blessing and your direction on all that we do. And everyone said, Amen. So, folks, as we continue to, to press towards this, this revelation, this unveiling, you know, today what we're going to be doing is, is really kind of examining this, this final period of church history. You know, you use the word final, you know, there is a, a finality to it. Folks, we are, we are living in that day and age where the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing himself at a, a such a rapid pace. And you, you think about just how things are happening. You know, years and years ago, even when I was in grade school, you know, it was almost as though there were certain events that were happening periodically. And so every few years something would happen and people would say, man, can you believe that happened? And the historic ends would almost wait until the end of the year, even sometimes the end of a decade, and they'd begin to record all the events. Folks, now historians are having to write at breakneck speed just to keep up with the things that are happening. And even with the proliferation of news through uh, mediums such as the Internet and radio and television and cable vision and all these things, you know what, it's almost like a, a, an inundation with all these things that are happening. I, I think about years ago when I was a, ch a child, you know, if you had the news at 6 and 10, uh, you know, there was a lot of repeated things that were going on. And so the 10 o'clock news was, was just basically a repeat with maybe a, uh, a few more segments on some human interest things that, that from the 6 o'clock news. Folks, there's 24-hour news stations uh, that, that fill the, the television dial. And so what you see is there's just this rapidity of things that are happening. And if you remember when we, when we opened up, we talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And, folks, we talked about what that shortly was. It's when some, once something starts, there, it, it begins to happen in a, in a quick succession. Boom, boom, boom. And, and we're told through the Word of God that in the last days that knowledge will increase. It, I don't know if you realize this, but probably 95% of the scientists that have ever lived are alive right now. And so we, we see science, we see all this knowledge increasing. We just see the, the, the advent of, of, of all of these mechanisms that... that, that, that 20 years ago, we would not even believed it. You know, you think about here we are, we're doing this, this program, we broadcast it live through the Internet. You know, five years ago, we would never have thought we could, we could do such a thing like this and have these type of, of, of personal capabilities. But now, you know, there's, there's telephones, there's iPhones that, that, you know, you can watch video, you can use it as a telephone. All these things that 20 years ago, we thought it was space-age technology. Now it's, it's something contemporary for this day. So what we're seeing is just a rapidity of things that are happening. And folks, I've got news for you. The closer we get to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faster these things are going to come about. We're going to see events. This past week, if you're listening to us live, all the events that, that happened in India and, and the, the, the terrorist type of things that are happening uh, there and in other parts of the world. Folks, hold on because they're going to shortly come to pass. And what we're going to see is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ in a greater way in, uh, in the wake of his soon and imminent return. So because this really what this we're talking about, this this unveiling or this final period of church history given to the, uh, the Apostle John to, to share with us. You know, because it's such a contemporary thing, what you're going to see is how, how true it is for right now. This is the age in which we live. And so as a result of that, we'll probably take a couple days to look at the Church of Revelation, much like we did with, with Philadelphia uh, in our previous uh, era in church history, because there's so much that I believe that is relative to what we're all experiencing right now and what's really is it's the history that we've seen unfold before our, our very eyes. And so what we need to look at really here is kind of the progression of things or, or really a digression of things and, and, and of many points of the church age throughout history. And, you know, when I say church, I'm not talking about a religion. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a building or an edifice. What I'm rather referring to is what comprises the ranks of Christendom. And so when I talk about the church, when it talks about the church age, it's anything that lays claim to that name. Now, laying claim to the name of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that we have a, a, a relationship with Jesus. And so when I'm talking about this church, I'm talking about that which comprises the, the, the rank of, of, of Christianity or Christendom uh, from the onset of the Apostolic Church of the Ephesus period, 33 AD through 100 AD, uh, all the way to, uh, to here, uh, which we find ourselves really kind of standing on the threshold of eternity. And so, you know, remember, and I want you to look at something kind of closely, all these subtle things that have led up to the dilution 
and the subsequent really deviation from the foundational precepts of the body of Christ or the, the true church that were built upon the rock, obviously, who's the Lord Jesus Christ, and upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And, you know, I, I use that word digression or, or, or digression or dilution because that's really what's happened. And so I can go back not just to the early church. You, you think about the early church. You know, it was a church of holiness. It was a church of, of absolute power. It was a church of unity. It, it was a church that was exploding upon the scene and, and made its mark. It was a, it was a church that, that in the midst of persecution, God was blessing and God was growing and tremendous, tremendous things were, were happening. And, and you saw that. And so fast forward 2,000 years to now. And you see a dilution of those things, of those principles. And so what happens, there's been this infiltration of all these other thoughts and all these other uh, uh, ideologies that have come in and they've kind of shrouded the, the truth of Christianity. And folks, you know what? That's a pattern that's happened not just through the birth of the church 2,000 years, this, this Ephesus age of the apostolic age of the church, birthed out of that, that Pentecost experience in Acts chapter 2, but it really goes back all the way to the fall. Folks, listen, there has been a, a, a consistent and constant dilution of everything righteous for the past 6,000 years. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they walked with God in the cool of the day, you know, there was a righteousness that was that enveloped everything that they were. There was a That was their very nature. The sin nature had not entered in because there had been no rebellion. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They had dominion. They had authority. They, they, they would have never died. There was, there, was, there was no deterioration. But when sin entered in, boom, these people that had been established right there in the garden to, 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 to populate and propagate uh, uh, the, the creation of God, suddenly they fell into a downward, endless spiral of, of destitution. And you, you see that throughout even biblical history, even under the Old Covenant. There was immorality, and the heart of men waxed worse and worse. And, and you get to the, the point of Noah, and, and you know he was the only righteous man found, and God sent that great flood upon the earth, and just Noah and, and the, the eight that were saved upon the ark. And so the only thing that, that bailed, quote unquote bailed us out of that was the, the redemptive work of the cross of Calvary. And so you see that, that, that dilution or that, that, that progression of things. And so what we're doing is we're literally progressing into that, that, that vanishing point of the, the, of the church that's going to bring forth the, the revelation of Jesus on that day when, when every eye will see him. Now, now think about it, how, how this in church history, you know, because this is us. Church history is not the history of the Baptists or the, the Pentecostals. It's not the history of the Methodists or even the quote-unquote Catholic Church. It's, it's a history of what God had ordained for himself, a bride, a church without spot or blemish. And you saw, we talked about the, the Ephesus 33 through 100 A.D., or that apostolic church, who really are the ones that first enjoyed that freedom of the new birth, but allowed themselves to leave their first love. And there's the, there's the focus they, they, they were birthed out of love. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not does not know God, for God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we, we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. You know, I can speak with the tongues of men, the tongues of angels, but if I do not have love, I'm as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And so whether it's there in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 1 John 4, 7, and 8, or John 3, 16, or wherever it is that we're looking at Scripture, it was a church found upon the principles of love. They will know that we're his disciple by the love that we show one another. But what happened to the church of Ephesus, even though it was the birthplace of it, they digressed out of that, that freedom and they left their first love. Then it, what it brought forth Smyrna, which was 100 to 313 A.D. You should have all this in your notes if you've been with us on a regular basis. Or that persecuted church that found that, that, that Christ's church is really built for and through the times of the most difficult persecutions. Folks, I don't know if you even think about this sometime, but we're, we're made for persecution. We are created to be persecuted. And, you know, we don't like to say that. We like to have our best life now, and we like to talk how, how sweet everything is. But, folks, we were built to go through the fire. You know, not unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, when they, when they, they, they were cast in the fire, what cast them in the fire? Their refusal to bow to the things of the world, to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, and to, to be cast into a place. And who was in the midst of the fire? It was the same one that was in the midst of the fire that says that we saw a fourth man walking in there like unto the Son of God. And so, folks, when we're in the fire, we're in times of persecution, that is what we're built for. That's what, Just like that Smyrna church, they, they rose to the top. They saw such a, a tremendous uh, unfolding of things. I got a call late last night, uh, or actually early this morning, from a brother who wanted prayer for a friend of his. And, and the guy that he wanted prayer for is a, a Christian, quote-unquote, minister-type man that, 
that's really been suffering a lot of things in his family. He's got uh, six children. Uh, one of them was born the youngest with Down syndrome. I believe three of them are, have juvenile diabetes. And, and he's just uh, beside himself just uh, thinking, you know what, when's things going to get better? You know, when, when's things going to get fixed? Where is God in all this? Folks, listen, if we adopt the mentality, and that's what I told him. I said, we think that when, when things go bad that God's not there. Folks, when things go bad, sometimes that proves that God is there that's sustaining us through the fire, through the trials, through the persecutions, through the tribulation. And so the persecuted church at Smyrna had that type of mentality, but we digressed away from there. Uh, we got to uh, Pergamos, uh, 313 to 605 AD, or the, the politically seduced church, which served, if we fast forward to now, kind of the precursor to the modern movement among a lot of evangelicals to, to really infiltrate places of government and to legislate morality rather than taking the gospel to the lost and, and the dying. And so even with that age of Pergamus, what has it done? Fast forward it to this Laodicean age, and even the principles of Pergamus have found their way in. And so we've got, like we've talked about in the past, the moral majority and the Christian coalition and all these things that think if we can just get enough people in the, in, in, in the places of, of political power that, that we're going to be able to change things. And we're going to be able to usher in uh, the, the, the morality that's uh, given to us through the, uh, through the Scripture. Folks, the only way that's going to happen is we go out and preach the gospel to people. We don't need more politicians preaching Jesus. We need more people taking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And that's going to begin to change things. Which gave way, obviously, to the church at Thyatira, 605 to 517. Or that pagan church. Or the age that brought forth the rise of the Catholic cult. And really laid the groundwork for what would be the base uh, organization of the, the false prophet right here in what we're going to be talking about in the Great Tribulation over the next uh, week. And then Sardis, 1517-1730, the Reformation Church that, that coincided with uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses being nailed to the door right there at the church at Wittenberg, Germany. Yet what it did, it fell into the deadness of religion with the injection of, we talked about Calvinism and, and other belief systems that, that claimed to be alive, but in reality they were they were dead. Which brought forth God's mercy at the Church of Philadelphia, 1730 through 1900, with the the, the missionary or the evangelistic church that sprung forth out of the Great Awakening. It led really to the evangelization of much of the world. That was the church of the open door. I've set before you an open door in the preaching of such men as George Whitfield, Charles Finney, uh, uh, the, 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 the Wesley brothers, Charles and, and, and uh, John and Jonathan Edwards. And, and really what that did is gave the church this great reprieve and injected a remnant into what we're going to be looking at in the, the, uh, the last day's church or this Laodicean church, a remnant really of holiness and, and preaching into to, to, to something that, that, that would become totally uh, perverted by the things of the world. And so think about this for a second. Re Revelation uh, 3, 14 through 22 is what we're going to be looking at over the next day or so. And it's this church at Laodicea which is going to be dealing with a period of time between 1900 and the present day and really right before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about some of these names and these meanings and, and every single time that, you know, I look at them again and, and study them, I'm just so amazed at just how revealing just the names of these places are. The, the name uh, Laodicea reveals really kind of a mentality of the people of not only that historical city, but, but really right now. And so as we talk about this, I want you to always think about what we're dealing with in Laodicea as a right now issue. And certainly from the 1900s until right now as we do this live right here at the, the tail end of 2008, it's progressively gotten worse. It's progressively gotten more defined. It's progressively gotten more in your face. And that word Laodicea is, is derived from a Greek word, uh, Laodicea. If you want an English spelling of that, Deb, for the screen, it's L-A-O-D-I-K-E-A, -E which means justice of the people. Justice of the people. Now, if you think, look at that just for a second at first glance. You know, Laodicea, justice of the people. Now, that's not too bad. You know, we can look back at some of the other things that some of the other churches meant, and they seemed a lot worse than that, but justice of the people. But I want to, I want to give you something to kind of make it maybe a little bit more understanding uh, in regards to the implication and kind of look at a, a mentality that, that it entails throughout the Word of God. Look at Proverbs 21.2. Proverbs 21.2. I'm going to give you what the Bible calls justice of the people. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the hearts. Justice of every man, uh, every way of a man is justice of the people. It's, it's right in his own eyes. Now look at Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
But every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so what this is really describing, folks, is a school of thought that really had, that, that began there, and we see it in the scripture, but it's really, to this day, it's kind of permeated our, our, our society, and it's brought, uh, you know, it's, it's been birthed out of universities, it's been birthed really into uh, mainstream religion, you see it everywhere, television, and it's something called relativism, relativism, R-E-A-L, R-E-L-A-T-I-V-I-S-M, relativism, i write that down, R-E-L-A-T-I-V-I-S-M, relativism. You got that? There she goes. And so I want to ask you a question. What is relativism? Maybe some of you have heard what relative, it's all, you know, you hear people say stuff like that. Well, it's all relative. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean it's my cousin relative or my, my mother relative. But what it, what it is, relativism, I'll give you that just for a second. What it's, what it's done, it's kind of birthed this, this whole ideology associated with political correctness. We got it with tolerance. You know, there's people that you'll go to work for a certain company and they'll they'll take you and you have to go through these tolerance classes or alternative lifestyles. All these things are, are, are the, the product of this, this ideology of relativism, which really encompasses this whole Laodicean church age. And so I want to give you a, a kind of a definition and an explanation of this Laodicean uh, relativism. And you can see kind of how it's played itself out. What it is, it's, it's the philosophical position that all points of view are equally valid and that all truth is relative to the individual. And so it's a philosophical position that all points of view are equally valid and that all truth is relative to the individual, justice of the people. And so what this means is that all moral positions, all religious systems, all art forms, all political movements, all of your thoughts, all of your opinion, all of those things are, are, are truths that are relative strictly to the person that has or holds to that specific position. And so under the umbrella of relativism, you know, whole groups of perspectives are really kind of categorized. Categorized. Here's some of the terms I want to let you have, because you're, you'll hear some of these terms as you're just going about daily life. There's one called cognitive relativism. Cognitive relativism. And what this does is this affirms that all truth is relative. And this would mean that no system of truth is more valid than another one and that there's no objective standard of truth. It would naturally, obviously, deny that, that God has absolute truth. So this cognitive relativism is it's like, well, you know, that's your truth or that's your thoughts. And that's fine as long as you want to have those, but I don't have to adhere to those things. Now, now folks, there, you can just look at the, the holes that would be within the, the framework of cognitive relativism. And it's like, okay, if you want to believe that, it's, it's your ideas, and so you're going to be subject to that. And it becomes that, that whole man does what's right in his own eyes, believing that eternity is going to be held sway by my opinion. Folks, when God set forth something in motion, you know what? He never has one time asked my vote on it. He's never asked my opinion on it. It's, it's not saying, you know what? If you want to hold to that truth, you can. Folks, cognitive relativism says that there's no absolute truth which is totally contrary to everything that God says. And so that's what this Laodicean church had brought in. The next thing is moral or ethical relativism. Moral or ethical relativism. And basically what that means is all morals are relative to the social group within which they are constructed. And so moral or ethical relativism, all morals are relative to the social group within which they are instructed. You know, as a Christian, as a believer in the absolute truth of the Word of God, I say... You should not lie. You should not steal. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not murder. I say those things are absolute truths, that there's no wiggle room, there, there, there's, there, there's no gray area. I say that, you know what, the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery and, and fornication and drunkenness and sorcery, all these things, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, folks, what you'll find is people that even, quote-unquote, adhere to the, the, the name or the moniker of Christianity, they won't agree with you on those. They'll say, well, that's just your interpretation. That's just your, your idea. And so 
You know what is you know you can you can have sex with someone as long as you love them as long as you're you're monogamous as long as you don't have multiple sex partners you don't literally have to have a, a marriage relationship it's okay and so that's what that whole moral or ethical relativism is and so what's happened is what that's given sway to and we'll look at it as we go through the the Laodicean church is you have these whole churches that claim to have this the the, the new liberty or the new revelation and so what they'll say is you know what God has given us a greater liberty and you know it may not be okay for you but but we can drink and so God's allowed us to, to consume alcohol or God's allowed us to do this or God's allowed us to do that. We've got a new liberty. Or we've got a new revelation of things. And so it's brought this, this moral, moral uh, relativism that says, listen, that may be your standard, but I don't have to be held to that standard. Folks, really, there's one standard and it's called the cross of Calvary. When Jesus Christ said, if any man desires to come after me, let them deny themselves. Let them deny their, their moral or ethical relativism, their cognitive relative. Let them deny those things and let them follow me. Let them hold to that same standard. And what the standard of Jesus is that, 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 that he came and, and he became our high priest and he was tempted in all ways just like we are, yet without sin. He was perfect. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world without spot, without blemish, without error. He walked in perfection. And folks, listen, when he tells us to be perfect as he is perfect, he's not calling us to a place of relativism. He's calling us to a place of righteousness. And so relativism, basically what it is, it's the world's a shoddy uh, uh, substitute for the right righteousness of God that the world says listen everything's right why because I say it's right rather than everything is righteous because that is the parameters that God has established for our life and so we have cognitive relativism moral and ethical relativism and situational relativism that ethics right or wrong are dependent upon the situation and so it can change based upon saying, well, normally I would do this or normally I would do that. But under the circumstances, folks, listen, if you're, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not under the circumstances. You're under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which changes us, which transforms us, which uh, causes us to become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so that the ethics that right or wrong, dependent upon the situation, basically what it does is says we're not governed by the person of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us, but we're governed by the external uh, uh, things of the, the world that, 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 that affect us on a daily basis. What's sad about that, folks, I see Christians that believe that all the time. They, they live their spirituality, their Christianity in situational relativism. And see, you may be thinking to yourself, well, listen, man, I'm not guilty of relativism. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, the Word of God tells us that in His presence there's fullness of joy. And that the joy of the Lord is our strength, okay? And so where's His presence? His presence isn't on some distant planet or some heavenly realm. He says that the Spirit of God is within us. And so where He's at, there is the fullness of joy. Now let me ask you a question. Is your joy based upon your situation? Is your faith based upon your situation? Is your love for God, is your obedience to Him based upon your situation? Do you find it more easy to be obedient to Him when things are going good? Do you find it easier to, to walk in, 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 in peace and in comfort when you've got a paycheck coming in? Do you find it uh, easier to have faith when nothing's going wrong, you're not ever sick? Or uh, You see what I'm saying? And so situational relativism is probably the most prevalent today even in most sincere people. Why? Because you're swayed by your circumstance. Then I'm in a bad mood. Well, why are you in a bad mood? I thought you were born again. Well, I'm, uh, I'm disappointed. Well, why are you disappointed? I thought he was the author and the finisher of your faith. And so what's happened in the mainstream of Christianity, like I said, sincere people have adopted a situational relativism and thinks, well, I can, I, can, I can have faith in God as long as, or I can trust God as long as. But the Word tells us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, to not lean upon our own understanding, our situational relativism, but, but in all of our ways acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. And so it won't be situational, it won't be circumstantial, but it'll be based upon something eternal. So for you guys that that say I don't fall within the realms of cognitive or moral or ethical relativism, you need to be careful about allowing yourself to slip into the Laodicean mentality of situational relativism that has really come in in, in strong force within the, the realms of Christianity. That's why Paul the Apostle would say, listen, I've learned to be a base. That situation, I've learned to abound. I've learned to have a good. But in all these things, I've learned to be content. In other words, I've learned not to be effective and not to be moved by my situation. I am going to be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that it is not going to be moved. Why? Because my roots run deep and my limbs are stretching out wide to receive everything that God is speaking to me in that moment. So for, unfortunately, folks, this, the, the philosophy of relativism 
has has become so pervasive in the in the culture today, and it's what it's done. It's it's rejected really in in all these ways. It's rejected God and and ultimately Christianity. Now, now I want to stop right there just for a second because we say we we don't reject God, but how often does your situation cause you to reject God? Do you reject God because of your situation? Do you re- and when I say reject God, you you may not totally renounce Him. Uh, by 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 saying I don't, but don't you reject him or or, or uh, turn away from him uh, when you your circumstance causes you to lean upon your own understanding? That's a, that's a type of rejection of God, and so we reject God. We reject Christianity in particular, is what you've seen through this Laodicean relativism. We we rejected absolute truth, uh, and all these things have just been abandoned for what justice of the people. I'm going to make my own decisions. Well, that's your opinion. You don't tell me how things are going to be. I'll tell you how they are, and you've just got to like it. And so what's happening is we've, we've, we've adopted really kind of a pluralistic society that, that wants to, to avoid the idea that there's right or wrong. And unfortunately, once again, that has come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And so what's happened, and you look at it in kind of a, a contemporary sense, and it's something we see all the time. It, it's, it's evidence in really kind of our deteriorating judicial system as well, that it, that is more and more trouble punishing criminals. They don't want to punish them. And so prison has not become a place of punishment. It's become a place of rehabilitation. And so... When judgment comes, folks, judgment comes for punishment. It comes to, to punish the, the offender. It comes. But what's happening in our judicial system, what they've done, they've adopted all these other uh, parameters that doesn't punish crime. And so what's happened is that same mentality, the deteriorating judicial system, has come into the church as well. And so what we don't, we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about repentance. What we want to talk about is, is being sweet. We want to talk about, well, God just loves everybody. God, it's all just relative. You know, God loves you, and, and if, if you just know He got, God loves you, then you know what? You can be in sin, and you're going to still be happy. Folks, you see how that type of thing has come in? And so, but when it's absolute truth, it says, listen, if you sin, you will die. If it says you walk righteousness in righteousness, you shall have life. If I sow to the flesh, I'm going to reap the, the reward of the flesh, which is death. If I sow to the Spirit, I'm going to reap the reward of the, the Spirit, which is life. And so what's happened is it continues through things like uh, the judicial system. Think about even in our entertainment. Think about that relativism. Our entertainment medium, what it does is it pushes the, the envelope of, of, of morality. It pushes the envelope of, of, of decency. You know, in our schools, what do they teach? They, they, they teach evolution. They teach this social tolerance. And, and what happens is, is this has become a plague of relativism. And it's basically, it basically encourages people to accept homosexuality, to accept pornography on television, to accept for, uh, fornication, and all these other sins that, that in the Word of God they're just uh, considered wrong, but they're now being not only accepted but really promoted in society. And you see that throughout the mainstream of uh, not just the world but of in Christianity as well. You know, when they begin to, to, begin to ordain and, uh, uh, homosexual ministers, and now you have these metro churches that, that, have, that are totally homosexual and they're, they're called Christian Folks, can, can you imagine? Let me let me just bring it to, to bear on something. Can you imagine going to the Middle East and having a homosexual Muslim mosque? Do you think do you think they would tolerate that? Have you ever seen a homosexual Jehovah Witness church or the first church of the homosexual Mormons? You don't see those things, and so you see within the the, the confines of quote unquote the church that calls itself followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That relativism has literally came in and has infiltrated our ranks. Why? Because we cease to stand upon the principles of righteousness and the truth, and we've allowed those things to come in because we've wavered in our situations. I was thinking about back in, I believe, 1972, David Wilkerson, who pastors Times Square Church, and he founded a, a, a Teen Challenge and ultimately World Challenge Ministries. He wrote a book called The Vision. If you get a chance, go to uh, Amazon.com or eBay or something. Find you a copy of the book The Vision. What's interesting about that, you'll read this prophetic thing that he gave. And he said, you know, at the end of the age, here's what's going to happen. And you think about time period, you guys that were alive in 1972, the things that were were allowed on television versus what's allowed now. And he began to talk about it. He said, you know what's going to eventually happen? Is he said, whole scale uh, nudity is going to be available on television. He said it's going to be pumped into houses. Total hardcore pornography is going to be available in households. 
Now, in 72, people would say, oh, no, people won't allow that. Folks, now it's, it's, it's available in homes through paid television, through cable. I think Playboy has got their own television. All this pornographic networks, uh, HBO, Showtime. Not only that, but just through the click of a mouse on your computer, you can invite all of that, those things into your house. Here it is. He, he prophesied those things. He began to prophesy a, 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 a great economic downturn that's going to happen right before the Lord Jesus Christ. Something he said would rival even the Great Depression. What are they saying? That, that, that some of the numbers, the stock market fell even to the lows further than the Great Depression. That was a prophecy in 1972, what, 26 years ago now that are now being unfolded. And he said it's going to happen in the last days. And so... What's becoming more pervasive is that, that if you speak out against this relativism that, or this anything-goes philosophy, that you're labeled basically a bigot. You're basically labeled intolerant. You're a bigot. But what, what's interesting about that in this whole ideology of relativism is how hypocritical that is. Because if you go out and, uh, and basically relativism teaches that, that your opinion is your opinion, and, and, but if I share my opinion and it contradicts them, I'm what? I'm intolerant. And so the relativism only goes as far as what they want it to go. And so it applies to that individual. And it seems what's really meant uh, by that mortal relevant is that all points of view are true except for views that teach absolutes, views that teach God, and views that teach there's an absolute right and wrong. And so with this moral uh, uh, relativism that's being permeated, basically anything is right except that which is righteous. I need to say that again. Everything's right which, except that which is righteous is what's going to be kind of the, the, the mentality of this Laodicean age. And so some typical expressions that you'll, you'll hear uh, that says it says, it's, well, that's, that is your truth, not mine. It's true for you, but not for me, or there are no absolute truth. And so think about this just for a second. Laodicea, justice of the people. Think about what it's done. It's, it's brought about kind of a philosophy of the majority rules. And, and not only just the majority rules, but, but, but it, uh, those with the loudest mouths are those that get heard. You see what I'm saying? Those that can speak the loudest, those that can, can conjure up the, 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 great, the most support from the, 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 uh, the, the special interest group, those are the ones that have the choice. And so what this does, it results in, a, in the legislation of God out of the mainstream of people's lives, and it relegates his involvement to just a few isolated hours that we uh, have on Sundays during a worship service. The rest of the time, it's strictly secular. Leave those things out. There's no place for it in the workplace. There's no place for it in our capital buildings. There's no place for it in our judicial system. If that's what you want to do, you can do it, but just do it on Sundays. Don't inject it into society. Now think about this for just a second, folks. The, the book of Job, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Job 8, 2 and 3. Job 8, 2 and 3. Here's what he said. He said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong man? Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? Now, folks, this justice of the people, or this relativism, is a perversion, really, of the justice of the Almighty. Because here's what it does. It removes the moral absolutes of His truth, and it digresses into the mentality of that's just how you see it, not how I have to see it. And that's exactly why 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21 says this. First, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. It says this. It says, We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed... As unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day of the dawn. And the day of the star arises in your heart. When's that? That's when the Lord Jesus comes. He's saying, listen, we've got a more sure word of prophecy. We've got something that's absolute. And he said, you know what? You, you do well to take heed of it. When? Until that light shines out of the dark place. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Until the day of the dawn of the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing this first, he goes on to say, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any Private interpretation. In other words, it's, it's not of the justice of the people. It's not everyone doing what's right in their, their own eyes. It's not this, this relativism. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, justice of the people, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was the God-breathed, it was that theonoustos, it was that, 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 that revelation that he gave that says, listen, it's not up for debate, it's not up for to vote, it's not up for your own ideologies. I'm telling you, here's the way it is. You can like it, you can lump it, you can leave it, but one day you're going to stand before uh, for me and you're going to give an account according to it. Now, Psalms 89.14 says this. It says, justice and, 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 excuse me, justice and judgment 
are the habitation of thy throne. Justice and judgment are the habitation of your throne. Folks, listen, if we adopt a mentality of a justice by the people, what we've done is we've tried to ascend and call ourselves more righteous than God. And so I'd ask you a question. Are you more righteous than God? Or do you hold to a higher standard than Him? And so what do we have to do? We have to put trust in Him. Folks, you know what happens when we don't trust in the Lord in our circumstances and we begin to worry, we begin to doubt, we begin to fear? Basically, what we're doing is we're saying we're more righteous than God. We're saying we're more powerful than God. We're more entitled to a situation than God is. And so if we'll think about that, what it does, it'll put a, if you'll think about that and you'll hold true to this, 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 this truth that justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne, what we won't do is digress into relativism, but we'll hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. We'll say, I know what I see, but it's not relative to what I'm going through. I know what I hear, but it's not relative to what I'm hearing. I know what I'm, I know what I'm having to suffer, but listen, my faith in him is not interdependent upon anything else. I am not reacting to my circumstances. I'm responding to the truth of God's Word and I'm going to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the things of God irrespective of the things that are in the natural. It's not going to be a justice. It's not going to be a circumstance based upon my own heart and my own will, but I'm going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's going to say, not my will be done, but yours will be done on earth right here where I'm at right now as it is in Heaven. So, justice and judgment of the habitation of His own mercy and truth shall go out before His face. Now, think about this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, in order to, to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward. Folks, i got news for you. The justice and the judgment and the righteousness of God, you don't have to just endure those things for a little while. You know why? That's going to be the basis for all eternity. I think some people think, well, if I can just do real good now, you know, when Jesus comes back and I'm in heaven, I'll have my little mansion. I can do my own thing. I can sit and watch my DVD, my spiritual golden DVD player all day and, and go out and play a, a round of golf. And you know what? You know, this person, you know, they die and they're probably fishing in the sea of glass. People get this mentality that, you know, watching just do these religious type of things, then one day you're going to just have it, have your own free. Folks, listen, I was created to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm adopted into the beloved through the sonship of, of, uh, uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and my life eternal is going to be marked and established upon the principles of righteousness not relative to what I want to do in eternity but I'm, going to, I'm, I'm made and created to be a vessel pleasing unto Him and that's not going to change. If I don't want to do that what I can do is reject Him and choose a relative thought and I can spend eternity in hell. And if you're burning in the bowels of hell for all eternity go ahead do whatever you want to. Have a good time. Get you a, get you a, 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 a lava of flowing DVD player and watch your own things and hold your own opinion because all there's going to be in that place is outer darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth and agony for all eternity and it will not pass. That is the product of relativism but the product of righteousness is hope and glory and transformation and being eternally in the presence of the living God walking unto obedience for Him. Of the increase of His government it will judgment and justice will have no end forever and ever because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, here's what happened, folks, in this Laodicean age. It's described right here in Isaiah 59, 14. Isaiah 59, 14. And it says, Judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Folks, you want to know what's happening right here in, in December of 2008? Judgment has turned away backward. Justice is standing afar off. Truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. In other words, that which is valuable, that which was builds up, has no place in our society. And you know what, folks? It has no place even in the church. I told somebody that I was, I was out of town. I got invited to speak at a church. And I said, you know what? I don't do that a whole lot anymore. I said, because what happens, you go and pre uh, preach truth. Truth is not welcome in the church anymore. Righteousness is not welcome in the church anymore. And that's what's so sad and, and, and really discouraging. Now, now, truth that says if you, if you do this, 
Here's the consequences. Truth that says if you do this and, and these are the consequences is not welcome. If it's not patting somebody on the head and saying you're sweet and you're nice, it is really not welcome in the church. But you know what? That's what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says. But judgment is turned away backwards. In other words, judge, judgment is not even looking. It's like, you know what? I don't even see it no more. I don't want to answer to that. I don't want to take the responsibility. And justice has to stand afar off. Why? Because we want to separate ourselves in general from the, from the righteousness of God to the degree that we don't ever have to become accountable to it. And here's what uh, the, the promise of what will happen, though. And it's out of Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto the house of David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Folks, I tell you what, there's a day coming when all this, this moral and cognitive and situational relativism is going to be cut off, it's going to be cast into hell with everyone that adheres to those principles. Why? Because there is a king that is about to rise, and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, and his name is Jesus, and above him there is no other, and there's no other name under heaven wherein the man can be saved, and he's going to rise, and he is going to execute judgment and justice in all of the earth, and to his kingdom and to his throne, there is going to be absolutely no end. So here's the deal. If you don't like it, you you can either get over it, amen, or, or, or you can get judged by it on that day. So the thing about it is we need to come to the point where, listen, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to walk with God regardless of what I see, what I hear, uh, regardless of whatever it's why. Because this life is but a vapor. It is going to pass away. And one day I'm going to stand before Him and I'm going to be able to live out eternity. And all these things in the natural are going to fade away. And I'm going to look to him, the author and the finisher of my faith. And he's going to judge me, not according to the relative teachings of this world, but he's going to judge me upon the righteous teaching of his word that will not come to an end. Heaven and earth will pass away with all of our opinions, all of the justice of the people, but his word will not pass away. Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Here's what we're talking about, this church at Laodicea. Folks, we really, though, we've got to, we've got to establish that mentality of what's in, because what you're going to see is just how prevalent that is today as we, as we look at the, the revelation. And it says, Under the, uh, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation. Now, we've talked about throughout these churches how he, he addresses these people now and how telling it is. To the church at Laodicea, he says, These things saith the Amen. You know what Amen means? It means, So be it. It's established. It's done. There's no way around it. It's not up for vote. It's not up for opinion. And so what he's saying is, listen, you can be as relative as you want to. You can, you can have all these ideologies. You can say, have it your way. But what does he do? He's saying, these says the one that has established it, who's caused the shots, the one that's not looking for our opinion. He's not looking for, for our ideas. He's saying, I am the, a, the amen. And so if I said it, so be it. If I told it, so be it. If I established it, so be it. He is the faithful and the true witness. In other words, he's already seen everything. He is named, his name is called faithful and true. His name is called just and justice. His name is called righteousness. And so what he's telling them is, and he goes on to say, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, you can say, you can do what you want to, but at the end of the day, I'm going to be the one that says it. And I tell people all the time, listen, you can, you can choose. You know, I, I witness to people on the streets, and they say, well, I just don't want to believe that. Well, I say, you don't have to believe that. You've got the choice not to. But one day you're going to stand before this one who is faithful and true, who is called the Amen, the beginning of the creation of God, and he's not going to judge you based upon what you wanted to do. He's going to base you uh, upon what he told you to do. And you're either going to do it, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Or he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. And he's going to cast you into hell for all eternity. And so why? Because he is amen. He is faithful and true. He's not looking for our opinion. He's not looking for our vote. He's not in a popularity contest. But he is looking for that remnant that will hold fast their confession of faith without wavering. He said, I know your works, that you're neither hot or cold. And I would that you were either hot or cold. So then, because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Don't you know that you are wretched, that you are miserable, that you are poor and blind and naked? He said, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him and will sup with him and him with me. And to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even also 
And I overcame and am set down at the right hand of my Father in His throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Folks, what's interesting about this historically, this was a city that really kind of became a crossroads place. If you were going to the east or to the, to the west or to the north, uh, what you did, you, you, you came to this city and it really became prominent under Roman rule. And it was a hub, and so much of the traffic that they used to go to other places, had to go through here. It was a cross, crossroads. What it's kind of like is that, 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 that truck stop out on a place that, that is on their way and it's the last place that you can get gasoline till you have a place. That's what the church at Laodicea was. It was a place that, that people came. And as a result of being a crossroads or a place where traffic found its way through it, it became very, very wealthy. A lot of people came through there and it became a large banking center. And it was very boastful. And here's what's interesting, too, of its prowess in the area, excuse me, the area of medical science. They thought that they had had all these remedies and all these things. And so they were, they were boastful about their medical practice. And they were very boastful because they became a major financial hub and kind of a banking center of the ancients. And so they, they became so self-sufficient. Here's what's interesting about them, even economically, that the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 A.D., and uh, they refused the imperial finance, financial assistance to rebuild the city because they wanted to do it themselves. They became so much about themselves. You know what it would be like? It would be like when Hurricane Katrina struck when I lived in the city of New Orleans. And the, the, the people of New Orleans saying, listen, we don't want FEMA to show up. We don't want all these grants to rebuild from the government. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do it ourselves. We're self-sufficient. Now, we can't even think about that now in the age of the financial crises and the bailouts where all these private private businesses are getting bailed out by the government. Folks, if you got yourself a chicken stand or got yourself a snow cone stand and you're doing bad, you need to write a letter to your congressman and say, I need to be bailed out. They're giving all these monies to these, these financial businesses. But you know what? That place was so self-sufficient. They were so full of self-will that they said, listen, we don't want anybody else to take we're going to do it ourselves. And so self-sufficiency had become the mantra of the city of Laodicea. And, and think about how that same mentality really has infiltrated the, the modern-day church, both financially and medically. And I say that from this perspective as well. No longer is Jehovah Jireh our provider. Because that's what it means. Jehovah Jireh means he is our Provider. No longer is Jehovah Jireh our provider. Why do I say that? Because you can turn on any television, go to many churches, and what happens? They're, they're peddling the, the snake oil of, of Christianity. You know what? You send this vow in, and you do this, and you're going to be blessed, or, or you give to this, and God's going to uh, increase you, or, or uh, buy my books and buy my records. What's happening is, is God has ceased to be our provider. And so the preacher will stand up and tell you, listen, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yes, as long as you're the one doing the giving and he's the one doing the receiving. Why don't he pass a plate full of money on a Sunday morning and say, listen, here's all this money that I got and I want to give it to you. Why? Because I want blessing to be up on this church and so I'm going to start giving away everything we got. But what happens, you have the hypocrisy of relativism that's even worked its way into the pulpits. It's relative based upon situation. It's better to give than to receive, once again, as long as you're giving and I'm receiving. But the day that I have to give, I have to give of myself. The day that the elders of that church say, listen, Pastor, uh, we, we, we really want to be a blessing to you. Well, you really do? Yeah, you've done such a great job for the church here. Yes, your preaching is wonderful. Hallelujah. Your teaching is unmatched. Praise God. Your dedication is is, is, is wonderful. So what we want to do is we want to compensate you in a way that, that, that's immeasurable. Well, what are you going to do? We're going to stop paying you. We're going to start giving your paycheck to the people in the congregation. We're going to start giving your paycheck every week. And you know what? There's a lady in the church that doesn't have insurance. We're going to start paying her insurance and we're not going to pay yours. Why? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, you can't do that. Well, Pastor, why can't we? That's what you preach. Well, you can't do that because then what am I going to do? Well, you're going to be blessed because God's going to take care of you and you're going to be the example to the flock and Jehovah Jireh is going to be your provider and Jehovah Rophe is going to be your healer. You're not going to need those things because you're going to be standing upon such faith and that word that you're preaching is going to become real to you and you're going to become an inspiration. What do you think is going to happen to that pastor? He's boogieing. He's going to find him another job. Why? Because his message, his faith is only relative to his circumstance and his situation. And folks, you see how that slipped into the modern church. I was talking to somebody just the other day about churches. You know, you take a church, of, say you have a church of 1,500 people, and the pastor resigns because he's going to a church with 3,000 people. Where's that next pastor of that 1,500 church going to come from? What are they going to do? They're going to go to their, their denomination. They're going to go and try out these guys from outside. You don't think, folks, in a church of 1,500 people, there's somebody that is qualified to preach the gospel? 
What does it tell you? They've become self-sufficient. They've said to themselves, listen, we're going to allow our denomination. We're not going to raise anybody up within our ranks. And so there's no trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this past week, if you guys listened to this live, you know, I was, I was out from, quote-unquote, the church that I oversee. And I didn't have any concern about what was going to happen. I figured to myself, you know what, it's probably better without me there. You know, we got guys there that can preach the Word, that can step up and bring the truth, and they're going to be filled with power. They're going to inject something into the circumstance or the situation that I couldn't. They're going to bring forth a revelation that, 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 that God has entrusted them. I don't have to sweat those things. I know it's going to get done. I know they're going to hit the streets. I know they're going to preach the gospel. I know they're going to worship the Lord. Why? Because they've been trained up to depend not upon their circumstance, but depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God is going to be, be, uh, begin to do that. He's our provider. He's our healer. He's Jehovah. Above Him, there is none other. And so what, what happened is, is we depart from that True and faithful witness. Now look what it says in verse 15, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe this 15 and 16 before we close out today. We've got about five minutes left, but I've got about, about enough time for those two verses. Here's what he told that church. He said, I know your works. In other words, you're not hiding anything. He said, I know exactly who you are. It's me that, that searches, yea, the deep things of your heart. I know the thoughts and the intents of your heart. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're doing. I know everything about you. And listen to what he knew about them. Once again, folks, the church at Laodicea, you know, we look at the other church and there was commendations and condemnations. Whereas the church at Philadelphia, we just did, didn't have any condemnation. In other words, he didn't say anything bad about them. The church at Laodicea, he don't have anything good to say about it. Period. There's nothing good to say about it, folks. And it's good, you're going to find out exactly why. The only thing, really, folks, that you can say about the church at Laodicea or about this age is, is what you're going to say about the remnants of the Philadelphian age. You know, I told you the other day that some of those things, those characteristics of the different ages progress into to different ages. And, and, and that remnant that come out of Philadelphia. Folks, listen, the only thing salvageable in this Laodicean age is the mentality of preaching holiness and righteousness and, and the Great Commission that was birthed out of the church at Philadelphia. And so what we have now is the, the, the counterbalance of that, which is a church that he had basically nothing to say about. He said, I know your works that you're neither hot or cold. And he said, I would that you were hot or cold, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Folks, I see so many things here. This, this is quoted so different. I've taught on this before in different uh, situations. You know, we think of hot or cold, and we, we're, so, we're so North American, we're so modern mentality of it. Now, if you're thirsty, chances are your first thing you do is not go to your sink anymore and pour out a glass of water. Oh, I don't want that. You're going to go to your refrigerator and you're going to get you a bottled water. Or you're going to go and get you a soda pop. Or you're going to go get you a cup of coffee, which I do. Or you're going to get you a glass of milk. Why? Because water today does not have the same value and it does not have the same meaning as it did 2,000 years ago. It was their staple. It was, their, it was good. It was something that, that, that you had to have. That's why when, when cities were built up, they were built along a river. They were built around a body of water. Why? Because that was their life source. And so, but what's happened today, we think you're neither hot or cold. And because we have this terminology, man, he was on fire for the Lord. We immediately think hot is associated with good and cold is associated with bad. Now, don't miss this. When he says, I would that you were hot or cold, both of those are good. Okay? The reason I say that is because he said, I would, that if, if, let's, let's just take the modern usage of the word cold, that people think that that's somebody that's cold towards the faith or indifferent. Uh, that does not mean that at all. Because why would he say that I would that you were cold? He wouldn't. What did he say? I would that none should perish. And so he wouldn't say, well, I'd rather some perish and some not perish. and some. He wouldn't say that. He would that none. So when he says, I would that you were hot or cold, that you were, but because you were not, you were lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Here's the thing, folks. When it's speaking of hot and cold, it's speaking of two types of water. Two types of water. Hot water being medicinal, like a hot spring. Like if you were sick, then you'd go sit in a hot mineral bath. You'd get, you'd get, uh, you'd get uh, the, the, the healing aspirations. One day I went and played basketball. I went to Pastor Donnie's house, and him and I sat in his hot tub, and that hot water was very refreshing. It, it helped, and I jumped out of the hot hot tub into the cold swimming pool and it was refreshing and back in the hot but both of those things worked to loosen our muscles up and so both of them were good for us and so hot being medicinal cold being refreshing and so if I'm going to go get a if I'm on a hot day if I'm in the desert I'm not looking for a hot drink of water I'm looking for a cool drink of water the thing about hot water and cold water when it speaks of it in Revelation 3.15 it's water that moves hot water comes forth out of a spring 
Cold water usually is flowing down from a mountain through a river. And so he said, I want you moving. I want you moving medicinally or I want you moving refreshing. Folks, sometimes you'll hear a word from the Lord and that word is like medicine. It is. It's, it's like medicine to the sickness that you have. You're struggling. You're going through things. And that, may, that word may come forth very prophetic. It may come forth very strong. But you know what it is? You say, man, that's a tough pill to swallow. You've used that, that adage. It's a tough pill to swallow, but man, I sure felt better after getting it because I know I needed it. It's like taking, when you were a child, you know, your mother would give you that spoon of that medicine. It tasted horrendous. Now what do they do? They mask it so you don't know that you're getting medicine. But when I was a kid, the medicine didn't always taste like, like a wild cherry. Sometimes it tasted nasty. But you know what? I felt better later. And, and, and so that, it was medicinal. But the flip side of that is when the word comes forth as cold. It comes forth as refreshing. And, you know, I think about, what is it, Acts uh, 3.19. It says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. And so if I get that refreshing from the presence of the Lord, that's that cold water. And so sometimes I'm refreshing, sometimes I'm medicinal. Jude puts it this way. He said, on some, speaking about preaching the gospel, he said, some having compassion, making a difference, that's cold. Others saving with fear, hating their garments, even spotted by the world. And so that's the, the hot aspect of it. But lukewarm water is the putrid, unmoving water. And so if someone in that day would come up along a pool of water that didn't have something fed, maybe it was just leftover water that was there from a, a recent rainstorm and had been sitting there, what's going to happen is there's nothing moving. And so what, what, the only thing that lives in that is the amoebas, the, the bacterias. And if you drink it, you're sick. Yeah, what do you call it? mosquito larvae, whatever it is, something that's going to be damaging to you. So he said, I'd rather you be medicinal or refreshing because if you're not moving, if you don't have a source coming to your life that's always going to refresh that pool, he said, all you're going to be is death. And as a result, he said, I will vomit you out of my mouth, which is physically what will happen if you drink a putrid water. It's like a, 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 a epicac. It'll make you regurgitate anything that was good inside of you. Folks, we don't have any more time, but we're going to continue along on this uh, the church at Laodicea and what I'm going to bring out some very specific historical events that really uh, line up with what we're going to be looking at here in these these verses of scripture 14 through 22 totally out of time today folks but we're going to be back tomorrow at 9 o'clock a.m. for another edition of the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies I encourage you to, uh, to be back send an email to your friends tell them listen we're studying the unveiling of Jesus Christ we're in the Laodicean age Tell them, listen, you want to see history uh, manifested throughout the Scripture? Come right now because we're looking at some things that are pertinent and relevant, relevant to our time today. Folks, I want to give advice today as we close. Get into God's Word, and God's Word will get into you.